the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, back by popular demand, this series, oh, that verse means that, is now up to session 40. Originally aired in 2022 from January through September, this series consisted of 31 programs. And to access those original 31 archived sessions or catch up on these recently revived sessions begun in May, just go to faithtalk1360.com and Search under local program podcasts. Well, friends, we're continuing to be what I call detectives of the divine. And that means we're putting on our detective's cap, pulling out our spiritual magnifying glass, and in today's session, strapping on our first century sandals. Because our goal is to protect ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively just blurting out what we think a Bible verse means and imposing a personal or modern perspective on it. Friends, sometimes I wonder why so many of us continue misusing Scripture. And interestingly, some Bible scholars were actually asked this question. They replied, declining biblical literacy, questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. And in spite the fact that Christians generally want to know what Bible passages mean, they often miss the meanings because they tend to be more focused on what they expect or want to find. It saddens me, friends, that we too often crave our spiritual quick fix, our biblical daily morsel, so we can get on with life, rather than take a little extra time investigating the context of verses we so easily abuse. Shouldn't our heart's desire be to do the scriptures justice at all cost? And shouldn't the desire of our hearts be to respect the Holy Spirit, since he's the author and inspirer of our scriptures? And quite frankly, shouldn't it upset us that up till now we've earmarked 39 Bible verses that are commonly misunderstood, mischaracterized, misinterpreted, and as a result misapplied? Shouldn't our heart's desire be, friends, to faithfully and carefully scrutinize Bible passages we've believed meant one thing because we're discovering they really mean something very different? 
and I'll continue to say that I take no pleasure in shining a spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically re-examining and reinvestigating texts that are unsoundly presented by some of us preachers, teachers, and pastors. And you know why? Because the Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But what are we pastors, teachers, and preachers and even average Christians often do, we force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story and why I say shame on us. Well, for today's session, our scripture under scrutiny is John fourteen thirteen and 14. Jesus' simple but so mischaracterized statement where he said, And whatever you all ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you all ask me anything in my name, I will do it, as the New Testament Greek reading suggests. So I've named today's session, Jesus, our genie in a bottle? But before we deconstruct Jesus' dialogue here, let me say, friends, that this text typifies our common practice of isolating a text from both its immediate and broader context, and imposing a meaning on it that was never there in the first place, and why I say shame on us. Now, some of us may push back a little hard here and quote to me some related supporting scriptures like John 16:23. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Mark 11:22 through 24. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in your heart but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Even Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you, for everyone who asks receives. This is repeated in Luke eleven nine. But friends, when searching the scriptures, we must be careful to not just cherry pick texts that speak similarly, but be acquainted with terms and concepts that run through the scriptures that help us to connect the dots to these texts and draw out their unifying factors. A key statement made by Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that served as his farewell speech guides us with these words. Now I know that none of you that I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now the Greek, Greek word here for will is not only communicating will, but also counsel, decree, purpose, and plan of God. After Pentecost, the apostles and Christ followers, and especially those who ended up writing the New Testament books, connected the dots for a whole host of Hebrew scriptures that pointed to the messianic plan and program of God. In his Pentecostal sermon, Peter quoted from Joel 2, Psalms 16 and 110, all thematically linked to predicting the last days and the coming messianic age. Then shortly after Pentecost, Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin, and they quoted Psalm 18 to them, and then after their release, prayed Psalm 2. My point here is that during the disciples' journeys and acts, they evidently didn't summon their genie in a bottle, or if they did, he didn't answer, or at least didn't answer the way they asked or prayed. In fact, in Acts 5, when the apostles were again arrested by the high priest and his cronies, upon release they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
In Acts 7, Stephen was executed for his faith, becoming the first martyr. In Acts 8, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and scattered all the new believers out across the empire. In Acts 11, the prophet Agabus, through the Holy Spirit, predicted a severe famine over the entire Roman world. In Acts 12, despite Peter's miraculous prison break, King Herod arrested some of Jesus' disciples to persecute them. So he had James, the brother of John, executed with the sword. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, while in Philippi, were stripped and beaten with rods by order of the magistrates. After that, they were severely flogged and thrown into the inner cell of the prison, and their legs fastened in the stocks. In Acts 19, while in Ephesus, a riot broke out, throwing the city into fury and confusion. Two of Paul's traveling companions were in the fray and pushed into the theater. In Acts 21, Paul himself was seized near the temple in Jerusalem and arrested and dragged away with the people trying to kill him. The mob was so violent, Paul had to be carried away by soldiers. Even in Acts 14, while Paul and Barnabas circled back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith by counseling them with, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Hardships is an interesting and rich word, friends. It carries with it the meanings of persecution, tribulation, affliction, pressures both internal and external, anguish and distresses. So, friends, what happened to their spiritual Santa Claus, their genie in a bottle? Did they forget Jesus' magic prayer formula, their prayer potion scripture? Did they neglect to insert their denarius in that personal vending machine of theirs? Evidently, blurting out in Jesus' name or tagging in Jesus' name onto the end of their prayers somehow didn't deliver the magic formula for getting whatever they wanted. Did they have a brain fart and simply forget to pray in twos per Matthew 18, 19, and 20 following Jesus' formula? I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Whoa! What's the deal here, friends? If the brief journey I just took us through in Acts is not enough, I'll suggest you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 16 through 33, and chapter 12, 1 through 10. I'll give us a little teaser from 2 Corinthians here. I have been prisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. 
Here's a snippet from chapter 12 that should fry a few of our brain cells. Trust me, you won't find this text on a plaque, on a doily, or hanging on anyone's wall in their house. Because of these surpassing great revelations to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whoa! Where'd Mr. Clean's magic eraser go? You know, the one that we just wipe over all troubles and make them go away automatically? Blurt out those magic words, those magic prayers with the tag on them, in Jesus' name. Better yet, why didn't Paul just call out to Roto-Rooter? After all, their slogan is, call Roto-Rooter, that's the name, and away go troubles down the drain. Friends, getting back to our scripture under scrutiny, John fourteen thirteen and 14, isn't it become quite evident that either we're reading this text wrong or we're unwittingly misunderstanding it, mischaracterizing it, misinterpreting it, and as a result, misapplying it? It sure seems like we've been able to amass a bevy of Bible verses that militate against the prevailing interpretation. Well, friends, let's grab our squeaky clean spiritual magnifying glass and sharpen our focus on today's scripture under scrutiny, John fourteen thirteen and 14, plus others like it. Let's bend our ear and hear these texts screaming out to us what story they've been trying to tell us. Because phrases like in Jesus' name have become familiar and repeated phrases we often cavalierly and authoritatively use, yet sometimes don't grasp the intended meaning. We then pass on to others a misrepresentation of these very verses. So let's reread John fourteen thirteen through 14 as the New Testament Greek wording suggests. And whatever you all ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you all ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Respected Bible scholar William F. Cook offers some key observations we must make before we just run off and bark out what we think this text is telling us. He begins by asking the question, what does it mean to ask or pray in Jesus' name? It is certainly not a magical formula that one mindlessly repeats at the end of a self-serving prayer. Four characteristics of a prayer offered in Jesus' name are 1. God's glory is the prayer's goal. 2. Christ's person and work are the prayer's basis. 3. Being filled with God's word and living in obedience are the prerequisite to this prayer, per John fifteen seven and 8, that say, If you abide or remain in me, and my words abide or remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And four, the prayer request must be in accordance with Jesus' character and will. Sadly, friends, some some of us use the rationale of Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Then go on to conclude that if they merely ask in Jesus' name, God will do it. In other words, God will give them their desires, bar none. 
In reality, this logic, many times unbeknownst to the praying person, creates a God who spoils his children, creates a God who functions like their Santa Claus, creates a God who's happily living inside the genie's bottle, just waiting to be summoned by rubbing it with the in-Jesus-name magic formula, and voila, he's there to grant you whatever you wish. You know, just make your wish aloud and boom, it appears. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you're tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing for support details at A Word from the Word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Well, friends, don't we owe it to ourselves to faithfully and carefully scrutinize the Bible verses we read a little more thoroughly? And don't we owe a debt of gratitude to God and His Holy Spirit for preserving His Word down through the ages for us? So, please, let's take a little extra time to ensure we're not only interpreting God's Word properly, but understanding it correctly, because we've investigated the context of verses we so easily abuse and then misuse. Otherwise, friends, the outcome of our poor and negligent interpretation is that we create a skewed view of God, and then project that skewed view of God onto others we teach or study the Bible with. Well, friends, let's put these verses of John 14, 13, and 14 back into their immediate and broader context so we can then apply them correctly. You've heard me say often that investigating both the context and the backstory is important. I'd like to suggest that you read John chapters 14, 15, and 16 in one sitting if you can, then home in on verses 14, chap- chapter 14, 8 through 21, where our scripture under scrutiny is nestled. And as we read these chapters that form the broader context, let's carefully observe that we cannot twist these scriptures to make them say that God wants to give us such material possessions possessions as cars, houses, money, and fame. It's as if we're craving the lentil stew instead of the birthright. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Check it out in Genesis 25, 19-34. Sadly, friends, we've knowingly or unknowingly tagged this phrase in Jesus' name to the end of our prayer as if in response to it, God simply replies, Yes, sir, and then proceeds to fulfill our wish or our own will. But can't we see, friends, that this attitude turns God or Jesus into our slave? Have we forgotten that our first goal is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? So I am of the conviction that our prayers, as William Cook observed earlier, should have as their basis the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the building of the kingdom of God. And friends, I'd like to suggest that our scriptures under scrutiny are tucked into chapter 14 where God's work is mentioned, specifically the work of the Father being done in and through Jesus Christ, verses 10 through 12. Then in verses 15 through 31, Jesus elaborates on the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will empower his disciples to continue his work in the unsaved world after he's departed. 
And I believe it's safe to say that the works they will do will include certain kinds of miracles to verify and give credence to the gospel message, because through these miracles, the gospel will be proclaimed and the kingdom of God will be expanded. Sometimes I wonder, friends, do we view our service to the Lord as working to expand the kingdom of God? In other words, are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Contextually speaking, John fourteen thirteen and 14 say nothing about our prayers expanding our own kingdoms or praying for God to do random things for us. Now, allow me to take a moment and unpack fourteen twelve about doing greater works than Jesus. I actually heard another pastor say that when the Holy Spirit comes, we'll do greater works than Jesus did. Here again, friends, let's put on our detective's cap and scrutinize the context. Look for the clue that aids us in the interpretation. I believe Jesus supplies us with the piece of the puzzle that helps us properly interpret what to us sounds so fantastic. In the last phrase of verse 12, Jesus says, "'Because I am going to the Father.'" Friends, Jesus realized that as a human being walking around on the piece of real estate we call Israel, his ministry was limited by time and distance. But the Holy Spirit knows no limits, right? Once the Holy Spirit comes, the ministry now supersedes time and distance. We only need to recall what happened at Pentecost. The Spirit indwelt some 3,000 people all at one time. So the notion of greater in John fourteen twelve must be controlled and ruled by the context of Jesus's last phrase. It's also helped by Acts 1.8, which lets us see the practical outcome. The apostles and the disciples' witness now goes beyond the real estate of Israel and out to the ends of the earth, with stops in between. In the same way, friends, our notion of whatever in John 14.13 and 14 must be controlled and ruled by the context of chapters 14 through 16, as well as the general mission of the book of John. John himself clearly articulates the mission of his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, notice the threefold mission of John's gospel. One, belief in Jesus as Messiah. Two, belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And three, believing these truths results in acquiring life, Zoe life, spiritual life, in his name. Ooh. So, friends, the whatever of John fourteen thirteen and 14 is not Jesus simply handing his disciples a blank check and saying, just fill in whatever amount you want, and I and the Father will make good on it. Let's just quickly review what our whatevers should include. From the scholarly and insightful thoughts of William Cook, we have our whatevers should include God's glory as the prayer's goal, Christ's person and work as the prayer's basis, being filled with God's word and living in obedience as the prayer's prerequisite, per John fifteen seven and 8. And from the Apostle John himself, our whatevers should include all that's necessary on our part, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to expand the kingdom of God so that people come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, in other words, the anointed and only Savior of God, so that people come to believe Jesus is the only direct Son of God, and finally so that, here it comes, friends, people will have spiritual life in his name. 
One last point, friends. We must observe the intentional closeness of the two phrases, and whatever you ask in my name, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is Scripture's check and balance system. Brothers and sisters, this is to intentionally protect us from cavalierly and authoritatively barking out what we think this portion means, the works and greater works that we do as Jesus' disciples, and the power we've been afforded by the Holy Spirit, are not for our own aggrandizement and our own glory or selfish wishes and wants the holy spirit and his power are not our genie bottle so jesus is not dispensing to us a magical potion prayer for us to fulfill our selfish endeavors first john five fourteen and 15 add fuel here by restricting prayer in jesus name to praying in accordance with god's will praying in god's will is praying with the awareness of the truth of jesus the mission of Jesus, and the ultimate goal of Jesus. True enough, it's also to pray in the authority of Jesus and do the works that Jesus does. So, friends, this tells me that even though a prayer has tagged on to it in Jesus' name, if it doesn't fulfill the purpose to glorify the Father through Jesus, then Jesus won't do it. Prayer's endgate is not the comfort, safety, and provision for us Christians, but the glory of the Father through Jesus. If our prayer is offered that doesn't glorify God, then it won't be answered. Friends, God's sovereign and definite will is perfectly aligned with and works through our genuine prayers in Jesus' name for the glory of the Father. It's up to us to meet the conditions Jesus lays out for us. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program. I hope it's both been a challenge and a blessing. And as promised, we'll close with an email where you may inquire about how to financially support a word from the word, which is listener funded. Friends, I love coming alongside those of you with it out of church home or those who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, we're broadcasting in 70-plus countries. Friends, please invest in the mission of a word from the word and help us become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.